Our scripture reading will be from different portions of God's Word, beginning with Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. This will be the only portion that will be continuous, and I'll be reading a few verses from the book of Psalms, and one portion, one verse, in the book of James, the letter, the epistle of James. So Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 through 9, hear God's true and eternal word. Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you, for to do them, that ye may live, and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers giveth you. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did because of Baal Peor. For all the men that followed Baal Peor, the Lord thy God hath destroyed them among you, from among you. But ye did, but ye that did cleave unto the Lord your God are alive, every one of you this day. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon Him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them thy sons, and thy sons' sons. And now we read in the book of Psalms, verse 34, chapter 34, verse 18. Just one verse of chapter 34 of Psalms. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. And then Psalm 119, I'll be reading verse 151. These are all psalms and verses that speak of the nearness of God. Well, first, 145. 145, 18. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon Him, to all that call upon Him in truth. And then 119, verse 151. Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments are truth. 
And then we go to James, the last verse that we'll be reading, James chapter 4. It's not even an entire verse, it's just the beginning of verse 8. James 4, verse 8. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Just that portion. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Let us now... Amen. Dear congregation, having now meditated um, twice in two messages on Psalm 30, 46 and coming closer to the divine comfort that it offers to needy souls. I have felt somewhat reluctant to leave the theme of its message too quickly. Like the secret that this psalm teaches us the secret that the psalmist, the author, did share with us in Psalm 46, um, verse 1. Uh, this is a psalm we've, we've been dwelling upon last Lord's Day. We considered this psalm at the funeral. We considered this psalm. And we hear the psalmist from the very onset say, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. In trouble. He repeatedly refers to this presence. It, it, it is the message of the psalm is that this comfort and this strength, this protection can be found in God when you know and trust and experience even His presence. He repeats, God is with us. This, this is the, 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 the secret of that city that is glad and that prosper in the midst of all the woes outside, that God is in the midst of her. This is a central part of the covenant promise. God said, I will be with you. And this was fulfilled in its climactic way when Emmanuel came to be with us, God with us. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we can experience the nearness of God. Now, there's a reality that, that is not experienced. Because when we look at the theology um, of this nearness or this farness, we, we can understand that that is a distinction between someone who is saved and someone who isn't. And this is, we will look at our whole point, our full, first point, far from God. And when we look at this, we will realize the reality that you can be saved and still be far from God. Now, if you are unsaved, you are far from God. You might feel close because of some religious connections and some ceremonies and some morality. But by definition, if you are not saved, you are far from God. And this is why I want to start here in this first point, the far from God. And in our second point, we will consider the nearness of God. 
But in this first point of far from God, we make this distinction that, yes, this, this is in a sense the sad state of humanity, period, after sin. When sin entered the, this world, it, it, there was this hiding from God. There was this going ever far away from God and a competing with God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. So you could say that conversion is the reversal of that. And we have Peter expressing it this way in 1 Peter 2.25. For we, for ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Psalm 119.150 describes the natural man. They draw nigh that follow after mischief. They are far from thy law. So, so we have this understanding when, when you are not saved, you are far. This is, I really believe I can say, as parents, if we think of husband and wife, they are now father and mother. This is the greatest sadness a parent can ever contemplate. Children who were presented to the Lord in baptism, so we are, we are even communicating. They, they are near to the Lord in the sense that they belong to the Lord. And as they grow up, your prayer and your yearning is that they will even profess this love to the Lord and this desire for closeness and live a life of nearness to the Lord. But there are those who grow older and, and, and farther and farther from the Lord. And it grieves and hurts the heart of that parent. Young people, you should know that. There's, there's no greater way that a heart of a parent can be wounded than if you grow farther from the Lord instead of closer to the Lord. And, and the Psalms that we're going to read, these verses, are, are God's Word teaching every one of our hearts that this closeness is possible. This, this closeness should be our desire, our yearning. God's Word instructs us in so many ways to have this closeness. But we read God's Word and we see that this is a, a reality not only experienced by us parents outside of the Bible, but it's experienced by parents in the Bible. So we, we see the reality. We, we lament with Isaac that he must know an Esau. And we weep with Abraham that he has an Ishmael who, who is not close to the Lord and believing in the covenants. And, and a Jacob, he has a Reuben. And then we see the sons of Eli and how they rebel against the God whom they pretend to be serving because they were priests. Then we read of Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, 3. It says, His sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. And in the cases of these two that I just said, the sons of Eli and the sons of Samuel, maybe they would say that they were close to the Lord because they were priests and they were serving in the temple. But they were far. And then we read of David and his sons, and Hezekiah and his son. The great blessing there that Methuselah, as far as he went from the Lord, there was still that blessed conversion, and he came close by the end of his life. 
So instead of remaining near, these are examples of men and examples of women who, who drew far from the Lord. Now, as I said, the, the theology of nearness, we, so we understand this. If you're not saved, you're far. If you're saved, you are near. But see, it is not that, that simple when you speak of those who are saved. Because there are those who are saved who are not living near to the Lord. Um, one of... We, we find even passages in God's Word that describes Christians of that kind. Um, James is one who does that. He speaks... Everything indicates that he's speaking to believers, to professing believers... But because they don't have a strong faith, they, he, he describes there, they are those who waver in their faith. He is like the wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. His prayers are not answered. He has a double mind. His, his mind goes in two directions. He wants to serve the Lord, but he wants to love the world. He's unstable in all his ways. That's James 1, verses 6 through 8. He continues to describe these these professing believers who are really far from the Lord. They are like one who hears the word but doesn't do it. And they are therefore like those who see their face in the mirror, they walk away, they, they, and they forget what they looked like. Peter describes this kind of professing Christian. And after, after describing a string of virtues that one must add to their faith, in our men's breakfast, we looked at this very passage, and Peter describes that a Christian should add to his faith virtue, then knowledge, and temperance, and patience, and godliness, brotherly kindness, and finally charity. He's, he's explaining that a Christian grows, and he wants to add virtue unto virtue. But then he says, he that lacks these things is blind. And cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. See, he's speaking of believers. Believers who are not walking with the Lord, they're not close to the Lord, they cannot possibly be experiencing the nearness of the Lord. And Paul also describes Christians who may be near in this general way, they are in the covenant or profess to be, but they are far from the Lord. In his letter to the Corinthians, he describes them. He pretty much just considers the, the, the greatest amount of the Christians in Corinth to be this kind of Christian. From 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4, we, we see what he lists. And they were full of envy and strife and divisions. Throughout the letter, he deals with issues of immorality, a brother going against brother in court, their marital issues, their wrong views of singleness, their wrong views of widowhood. There's a selfish view about the gifts, thinking that they were meant for personal edification. And then there's a very serious problem of a self-glory where they were exhibiting their gifts as if they were meant for spiritual competition. And Paul considers them Christians. So there is a possibility of being a very immature Christian, a carnal Christian, is how Paul calls the Corinthians. In a word, these are believers, if they are, who are not living close to the Lord. They're not growing in sanctification. They're unfruitful. They are barren. 
They are doing nothing that truly is of value in the kingdom of God. And that's a very sad, um, sad reality. And now, beloved, you might, you might be a believer who says, you know, I confess that I have been in many times of my life possibly a little like that, but I don't want to. I want to be near to the Lord, but I don't experience His near, nearness as I wish I did. I don't feel that He's near. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. And you might even be a believer who, who is not double-minded and a believer who isn't just giving yourself to, to a lax, complete way of living. But you still don't feel that nearness as you would want to. In, in many ways, I believe that the mass amount of Christians who are sincere and who are seeking to grow would fit in this very category and are welcoming the theme of nearness to the Lord. Could I ever be someone who would get pen and paper and be able to say, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And then added to that, these other verses that we read, where we could say, God is near. That we could say, the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and save it such as be of a contrite in spirit. Or who could say, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord thy God, that I may declare all his works. And so what, what I'm hoping to do now as we go to our second point, the nearness of God. I, I just wanted in this first point to, to show there is this reality. If you're not saved, you are far no matter what you feel, if you're saved, you cannot be near. But then even if you're saved, there may be these degrees of, of farness from the Lord. And, and none of us want, if you're a true believer, you, you're not content with that. You want to be near. You want to be close. But you do confess that you sense a certain far, farness from the Lord. And, and when, when it, this is what helps to read some biography. We read of, of certain Christians who have lived. You are not alone when you feel this. Um, you read David Brainerd and his, his, um, his journals. And he would speak of moments where he felt very far from the Lord. And then he's there praying for about 10 minutes. He says, I, I was cold for about 10 minutes, but then I felt a warmth and I felt God's presence and I never wanted to stop praying. And so this is, this is a common thing in Christian experience, even if you're walking in the right way. And so it helps us to see what does God's word say regarding the nearness of God? What does it say in terms of of how am I supposed to, to be living? Um, what, what am I supposed to be doing? I understand that it's a comfort, and I want this comfort. And let's look at the connections. And then at the very end, in this second point of looking at the nearness of God, I also want to look at, there's a connection with the commands. Because 
being close to the Lord is not just up for us as if it were a bonus in the Christian life. It's actually a command. And we will look at those as well. So, so this is encouraging because if God commands us to be near to Him, then that means that He wants it. And He will give us what we need for that to happen. Because every command that God gives, He also provides the means for us to obey it. Because that's the only way we could ever obey it. It's through His help and through His strength. So we're going to look at seven um, major virtues and disciplines and um, commands that, that are connected to the nearness of God. The first one is the connection between God's nearness and God's law. And this is why we read first Deuteronomy 7. Um, and eight. Let me read that again. For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all the things that we call upon Him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law? See the connection? Um, Moses is saying there is no nation greater than this one who is so close to God. And then the next verse he says, And there is no nation in the world that has such perfect law. And the nearness of God and the law of God is put side by side. There's a connection there. The word nigh, little children, and every time you see nigh in the King James, of course it means near. It means nearby. It's the idea of approaching. And so God is near to Israel and the word of God, the law, is near to Israel. Um, this is also why we read Psalm 119. I, I read 151, but let me read, read 150. 150 says, They draw nigh that follow after mischief. These are those who don't know the Lord. They are far from thy law. See, when you're far... It's also far from the law. If you're far from God, you're far from His law. And then verse 151 of Psalm 119 says, Thou art near, O Lord, and all Thy commandments are truth. You see, the person who can confess the nearness of God can also look at the law and say, I love it. It is true. I love Thy law. They go hand in hand. And... Because of Psalm 119, 150, we can see this. While the enemies of God may be coming near to us, because that's what the psalmist says, they draw nigh that follow after mischief. They're, they're coming close to us. The idea is that the enemies of God are going to hurt us. They're going to persecute us. They're coming near. But the believer says, but God is near to us. It is true that we're surrounded by trouble, and they're coming quite close. But we believe in a God who is close. And that nullifies, as it were, the worrying effects of the news that the wicked ones are near as well. So these two passages, Psalm 119, verse 151, and Deuteronomy 4.7 show this connection, God's nearness and the law. And if we read in Deuteronomy just one verse before in that whole context... Remember, let me, let me read um, 
verse 5 and 6 of Deuteronomy 4. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Now notice, notice the end to which God wants them to obey the law. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So we we start understanding God didn't give His presence and His law to Israel just to set them apart and say, Okay, you all are good, everybody else is bad. God did to Israel in the same way as he does to a prophet. He chooses a prophet to go out as an evangelist in this world. Well, God was setting apart his city and his people, his nation, to be a beacon of light in this whole world. Just as a prophet can be a one-man evangelist, all of Israel was supposed to be a one-nation evangelist to this world. See, this was the purpose, so that the nations would say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And that's the context of our passage. For, for what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon Him for? So the idea would be for these nations, us, to look at Israel and say, God is near them. They have the law. I want what they have. I want their God, I want their law. Because there is understanding there, there is life, there is wisdom, there is guidance, there is freedom. And so Israel was meant to be an evangelist to the whole entire world. And in many ways you could say that as Christ came and all of those prophecies were fulfilled, the Messiah was received Many Israelites did believe, the majority didn't, but then he became a light to the Gentiles. And yes, in in, in a sense you could say that they fulfilled their ministry of being evangelist, but in in a fraction of a way. It was that remnant. It was the apostles who were our evangelists. So yes, it was the Jews. It wasn't the whole nation. But it was the Jews. And that became a light to the Gentiles. And as you were added and grafted in to that same olive tree, the Christian church became part of this evangelistic nation. So so this is what we need to understand. This is why we now are, along with Jewish converts and Gentile converts, and whoever throughout the whole world is converted, We become this beacon of light to teach every living soul that there is a God and you can be near to Him through His Savior, through His Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at John 15.10. This is where Jesus, um, even in the New Testament, and being the one who fulfilled the covenant, continues the same truth but makes us understand It's not that obeying that law would make God near necessarily because it would be impossible to obey that law perfectly. But that law was the will of God. His presence was with His people. And in due time, God sent Jesus who fulfilled the law. 
so that through Jesus, you are declared righteous. You are declared as one who has obeyed the law perfectly in terms of justification. So see, through Jesus, we have the presence of God and the law fulfilling the same reality and that connection. And I want to read John 15.10. Jesus said, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. See, that's the nearness. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So, So Jesus wasn't saying, Well, now that you have me, you can throw the commandments away. No, He still wants us to obey it. He still wants us to see His law and love it. We, we understand the law will never save us. I'll never be able to obey it perfectly. It's not just when you do that you have Him near. No, it's through Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who has obeyed the law perfectly. When you trust in Jesus, that, that fulfillment of the law that we were not able to, to fulfill was fulfilled in Him. And so we can experience the nearness of God. So this is the first connection, the nearness of God with the law. Let me go to the next connection. The next connection is between his nearness and a broken heart. And I add to that a contrite spirit. This is why we read Psalm 34, 18, which reads, let me read it again. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart. And save it such as be of a contrite spirit. God is saying with this verse that if you fulfill a category, if you, if you fall into a certain category of living experience, He will be near to you. And what is that category? It's the category of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Now, these, these words are connected because one is helping explain the other. But you can apply that to other areas of brokenheartedness that are not necessarily connected to a contriteness of spirit. And what do I mean by this? Well, a, a broken heart in, in the Hebrew means a smashed, a shattered, a destroyed heart. So you can imagine that can be a heart who is broken because of some kind of affliction in life. But in the text, the main affliction is connected to sin. And you are now contrite in spirit because of sin. Because that's what the word contrite means. It's, it's a brokenness, therefore, due to repentance. Now, the reason I said you can apply this to other areas is this. If, if, if your heart is broken because a loved one has gone astray, well... That is a brokenness that in one way or another may be, may be connected in, in regards to your sin or that person's sin. And you know what I mean, that every time you suffer, sin is right there at the door because we already have the afflictions of discontentment. We have the afflictions of wanting to worry. And sin is right there. And it, and it adds to the brokenheartedness. So I believe this is a great comfort to believers to know. God is saying here that if you're, if you're very sad and you would say that your heart is shattered, God is saying, you qualify, I am near to you. And so there you are with that brokenness, and God is saying, well, then I'm there. And beloved, because sin is really in that sense the worst kind of thing that could afflict the heart, 
Because you are considering, I have offended God, I have made him grieve. And so in our hearts, we have this thought that God could not be near me. God has to be far away because I've offended him, I've transgressed against him, I have rebelled against him. The last thing we could consider is that this God would want to be near. And he is saying, if you're repenting because of your sin, if your heart is contrite, guess what? Guess what? I'm there. God is saying, you qualify. I'm near. So, of course, the word here is is repentance. And this, beloved, is why if if we transgress, we need a labor to repent. And when I say this, of course, I'm not meaning that it comes out of us. But we need to understand. We need to understand that we don't just sit there waiting for repentance to happen. Now let me read the continuation of James 4. I I read James 4, 8. Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. I'll come back to this at the end because you see this is a command. It's not saying, oh, experience the blessedness of closeness of God. No, it's commanding that you draw near to God. And then look what it says. It's a command to repent. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to heaviness. You see, it's, it's a command to fall on our knees and say, Lord, I have sinned. Forgive me. Cleanse me. And this is the encouragement. There you are in the sadness of that brokenness. And God is saying, I am near to you. If you're contrite, if you're, if you're now washing your hands, you are, you are exchanging your laughter for mourning, well, then you can be comforted because I'm near to you. Isn't that encouraging? Look, look at what Matthew Henry says about this. It is the character of the righteous whose prayers God will hear that they are of a broken heart and a contrite spirit that is humbled for sin and emptied of self. They are low in their own eyes and have no confidence in their own merit and sufficiency, but in God only. And God rewards that with His presence. Spurgeon says this, Just when the sinner condemns himself, the Lord graciously absolves him. If we chasten our own spirits, the Lord will spare us. He never breaks with the rod of judgment to those who are already sore with the rod of conviction. Salvation is linked with contrition. So what an encouragement to see this blessed connection. Here's a contrite heart, a broken heart, and God is saying, I'm near. So God's nearness in His law God's nearness and repentance, humility. Then thirdly, there's a connection between God's nearness and faith. And, and this is, shouldn't be any surprise to us. Every time we speak of repentance, you know faith will be right there or vice versa. Faith and repentance. Look at, look at Psalm 73, 28. This isn't a verse I read yet. Psalm 73, 28 says, But it is good for me to draw near to God. There's a theme of nearness to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. See, nearness and faith 
right hand to hand. And, and this really describes um, what it means to be humble and contrite. If, if you're contrite because of your sins, you are acknowledging that you offended a God that you should trust and believe, but you, you didn't. You, you sinned against Him. Um, humility is, is an act of dependence, and dependence is an act of faith. They all go right together. The opposite would be self-reliance. It would be self-righteousness. It would be someone saying, I don't need God. I don't need His closeness. I'm fine. There's a connection of God with repentance, the nearness of God with repentance, and the nearness of God and faith. One more verse that supports this is Hebrews 10.22. A well-known verse. Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, sin makes us go far. Repentance and faith makes us go near. And God says, I am near to you when you repent, when you are humbled, when you believe. So that was third. Now fourth, a fourth connection. The connection between God's nearness and you calling upon Him. This is what will happen, right? The heart that is contrite and who believes will call. You will confess. You won't run away from God. You will say, God, I need Thee. I I offended Thee. That would be just to flee from me but I will flee after because I need thee or I die. So you call upon Him. You ask, you plead, you implore. And this is why we read Psalm 145, 18. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon Him. You see the closeness, the connections? You, he's near when you call. There's a connection there. You call, He's there. He's there because you called. To all that call upon Him in truth. There's this emphasis. You you don't sit there silent. You need a call. If you're silent, there's no promise of His nearness. You call, and He is nigh unto all them that call. But then it continues. It gives us us the other words that, that we're hoping to consider because it says in verse 19, He will fulfill the desire of them that fear Him. Keep that in your mind. I won't go into details, but you do have to add this, that if you fear the Lord, well, that fear is connected to nearness. He also will hear their cry and will save them. And then the next verse adds love. Look, the Lord preserves all them that love Him, but all the wicked will He destroy. That's utter farness from God. Ruin. So first the call, to call, to shout, to proclaim. That's what it means to call the Lord. It's not just a little silent prayer. It means to shout, to proclaim. In truth means that you are meaning it, that you are sincere. It is with trustworthiness. Um, Spurgeon puts it this way, to pray in truth, we must have a true heart and the truth in our heart. And then we must be humble for pride is a falsehood and be earnest or else prayer is a lie. A God of truth cannot be nigh to a spirit of hypocrisy. This he knows and hates. Neither can he be far removed from a sincere spirit, since it is his work, and he forsakes not the work of his own hands. And, and just that little phrase put a, 
put something together in me when, when I was studying. This is why he's near the contrite in spirit and of a broken heart, because he did that. He's the one who broke that heart. He's the one who led him to repentance, and now God will be far? He can't. And Spurgeon brought that. He said, of course he won't be far from those who are humbled because it's his work. It's the work of his hands. And so the connection between God's nearness and calling upon him. And as I read from Psalm 145, the connection between God's nearness and the fear of God. Just a little word of what Matthew Henry says. The fear of God and the nearness to God. He satisfies the desire of every living thing. Much more will he fulfill the desire of those that fear him. For he that feeds his birds will not starve his babes. It shouldn't surprise us because all of these words are in a sense describing the same heart. A heart who is humble because of sin and broken is a heart of faith. He, he is a heart who loves the law. That's why he's so grieving, because he broke it. And this reverence and this awe is because of fear. But I love how this very same passage, Psalm 145, verse 20, then says, The Lord preserveth all them that love him. It brings love, the very next verse. And that's number six, the connection of God's nearness and love to God. Many of us wouldn't think that a person who is so humbled, so contrite, that that is love to God. But when you think of it, it is obvious. If you, if you broke the law of the God whom you love, you should feel broken in your heart because you love Him. So all of these words become helps to encourage us to know the, the path of nearness to the Lord. The law of God, humility, brokenness, faith, fear of God, love of God, calling unto God. And seventhly and lastly, the connection of God's nearness to the commands regarding nearness. I said I was going to return to this. And this is why I read a few other passages spoke of command. But going back to James chapter 4, verse 8, I, I want to emphasize this is not an option. It is not that you become a Christian and you are certain that you'll be saved and go to heaven and that's a blessed existence. And, and you know, if you want to have a better experience as a Christian, you can be close to God and experience His nearness. It's, it's not a better Christian life that you have an option to live. It is a command that the believer draw nigh to God. Verse 8 of James 4. And this is what I mean connection. He makes this connection. Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. And now, this is the way we can understand this. God is in essence saying, if you have no desire for my nearness, then you shall not have my nearness. He has no interest in being near to one who is not interested in being near to him. And yet we understand the theology that the moment you are interested, it is because he has given you the heart in order to be. 
That, that, that reality. We love God because He first loved us. But see, it really puts this, this weight upon the heart of the believer to understand, I, I'm not to sit here and wait to desire His closeness. I must bow in obedience to this. And yet, you, in, in an, even in a logical and reasonable way, you say, and what is there more desirable than to have the closeness of God? Beloved, what are we speaking of? We're speaking of having close to us our very Creator, the One who made us and who fashioned us. And we think of who He is. He is love. He is eternal. He is wisdom. He is all-powerful. We see these people who, who are prestigious. You know, think of kings and prelates and governors and presidents. And we would like to talk to them. We would like to see them face to face. But God, is there a being of greater interest to be near to? A God who provides and a God who loves. Why would we not want this? It's sad in a sense that it has to be a command because it speaks of the weariness of my heart that I wouldn't want to wash my hands so soon, that I wouldn't want my hearts to be purified so early. But if I don't repent, I will not experience this closeness. If I don't believe, it will not happen. If I do not call, He will not come nigh. If I do not draw nigh to God, He will not draw nigh to me. That's what it means to say, draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. It means that if you don't, He won't. So there's a connection there. Look at Isaiah 58.2. That, that speaks of how and what should be the heart of the believer. See, if, if in your heart, even as I say these things, you're, you're not really yearning for this, there's something very sad in your Christian experience. Because it shouldn't be that way. It isn't that way with earthly things. Imagine if you received in the mail the invitation to go to some palace of some king in some of the nations that still have kings. And certainly there would be an interest, me, to go there. What a privilege. But we're being invited and summoned to have near to us the greatest being, God Himself, Look at Isaiah 58.2. They ask of me the ordinance of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. That's how it should be. You and I should not need a command to approach into God because we would delight to approach unto God. But you see why James is saying this. These are people who had been living in sin. They were double-minded. They, they, they were just going on with their lives. They were not humbled. And that's why he has to say, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. But when you are living your life um, under the gifts of the Spirit and with the help of God, th this command sounds even strange because you say, I, 
I, I want to. I delight in it. I don't have to be commanded. It's something I want. It's something I yearn for. So just in summary, these are the connections to the nearness of God, the law of God, obedience, therefore, to it, and love to God, fear of God, repentance and faith, pleading for this nearness, seeking it, drawing close to God. And, of course, this means in practical ways, it means that we would have to spend time with God in reading His Word, in praying, spending time even in meditating in the Scriptures, maybe writing down our notes. Um, um, If our minds are not concentrated, do whatever it takes to concentrate and to spend time with the Lord, and you will experience this nearness. Um, Andrew Bonar, he said this, In order to grow in grace, we must be much alone, It is not in society that the soul grows most vigorously. In one single quiet hour of prayer, it will often make more progress than in days of company with others. It is in the desert that the dew falls freshest and the air is purest. Now, having studied about this and thinking, you know, many of the sermons, just when I think recently, I've been focusing a lot about the reality of the climactic experience, you could say, of believers of being in church and worshiping God corporately. And this morning we spoke of the importance of of praying together, praying corporately. There's, There's these gradations regarding all these disciplines. When we come together, there's always a climax because that's the closest to how it is in heaven. But it can't be just that. It can't be that all we do is come together and express our worship and pray to God and sing together. You need to pray and read your Bible in quiet, like Andrew Bonar says, as it were in the desert where the dew falls. And maybe in one hour you will grow more than in five services just because you're there with the Lord. And the Puritans always spoke of the gradations like this. Yes, that's a foundation. You and the Lord, your quiet time, your time of meditation, your time of prayer. You need to make time for that, either in the morning or at night, wherever it may work for you, but where you guard it, where you protect it, and where you're there and your mind is focused. And then together as a family if you're still with your family, that we would come together as father, mother, children and read God's word and have family worship. The Puritans would promote that morning and night, that there would be family worship throughout every day of the week, morning and night. I understand how hard that is, but let us also protect that and try to keep that as much as possible. And then corporate worship on the Sabbath. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. That's Isaiah 30, verse 15. Now, the busyness of our day does a great deal to distract our minds and keep us from those moments that we would be closer to the Lord. Beloved, let's let's not let that happen. Perhaps some of us aren't experiencing the closeness just because we're not focusing and we're not spending those quiet times. And I just want to end with with one little illustration. 
there, there's a man who tells a story that he saw a, a peddler um, in, in Ireland. He said, evidently an Irishman selling wares from door to door. And he went to that man. Um, he, he was somewhat of an evangelist, and he wanted to get to a point of evangelizing him. And after the usual greetings, he, he said, it's a grand thing to be saved. It's wonderful to be saved. And the peddler said, excuse me? It is, he said, but I know something better than that. And the evangelist said, better than being saved? He asked in astonishment. And the peddler said, what can you possibly know? Oh, and he said, what can you possibly know better than that? And he answered, the companion of the man who saved me. A closeness with the Lord Jesus what he was trying to express is exactly this. It is wonderful to be saved. There's nothing better to be saved. But among those who are saved, there are those who live closer to Jesus, closer to our God. And that is even better. It is a better Christian experience to be close to the Lord. And may the Lord give us the grace, the strength to seek that closeness and to live it and to declare it to the world. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, how we thank thee, Lord, that thou art a God who has an interest to be near to, be near to us. We are the ones who have sinned We are the ones who made it necessary for Jesus to come and suffer. And when we think of us as believers, we're the ones who continue sinning even after such great light. And thou art still a God who delights to be with the sons of men. And Lord, we thank thee. We ask forgiveness, Lord, that in our Christian walk we do not do more to foster that closeness. Lord, there may be souls and bless their hearts to continue, Lord, with that great closeness that they might already experience and that that their experience may be even more blessed with strength and comfort. But Lord, for others, we plead, Lord, that Thou would make us willing that we would see these connections between Thy closeness and the law and repentance and faith and in a sincere calling for thy closeness to us. Lord, help us to fear thee, help us to love thee, and that we may be able to say with the psalmist that, that our God is a refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.